Who needs a message guide? Anybody? Anybody? All right. If you do, raise your hand real high. We'll make, there, here's a hand back there. Mr. Keene. I don't know if he really needs one, but he's going to get one. All right. He does. Right. I saw one in your hand. That's why I was wondering. Okay. Ah. Well, what's yours is his and what's his is yours, right? Or what's yours is his and what's yours is his. <laughs> what's his is... Anyways, you know what I mean. <laughs> it can work both ways, just depending on who you are, I guess. Well, let's open our Bible to Matthew 28. And uh, I'm going to share... Actually, uh, what I'm going to share just kind of as an introduction is not necessarily in your message guide, but we'll get to that um, before too long here. <clears throat> Shelby's been a little worried about me the last couple of weeks because I have gone, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I used to save the back of your message guide for you to take notes. You notice the last two weeks I've actually got material that we're going to cover there. So I'm scaring some people because, you know, my track record of getting us out of here at, a, you know, 12 o'clock is like the magic hour. Um, but I did pretty good last week. I think, I think we, I won't tell you I have another couple of pages of notes that aren't even there that we're going to cover. So I don't want to scare you too bad or anything. But I do want to, uh, all kidding aside, you know, I'm taking some time purposefully at the beginning of this year to cover some, some things that, that not only are scriptural, but there are also things that are unique to this congregation, Christ Fellowship. And last week we talked about our mission, and we talked about the Great Commission, and we talked also about our mission as a church to reach people and help them grow to become fully functioning followers of Christ. And our mission is the Great Commission. However you want to put it in terms of a mission statement, you know, we have a mission statement in the scripture. It's, it's the Great Commission. And so our mission as a congregation should never vary. It should never go outside the bounds of the mission that God has given us as the people of God, as his church, the body of Christ in the earth. And, and this week we're going to talk about philosophy of ministry. And, and, and a lot of these things are kind of specific to us and, and the reason I want to do this, going into the first of this year, uh, we're going to have a SALT meeting at the end of this month. It'll be on Saturday the 29th. And I, actually, I don't know if Shelby got my email. I, I sent Shelby the wrong document to put as the uh, promo for the SALT meeting. Uh, but it worked. You know, it's all right. You, you know there's one coming. And so we'll hand out the promo with you know, the little spiel I wrote that I wanted to really you to catch the vision of why we're going to do this. And, uh, and, and part of this, it's not just for people who are actively volunteering. Maybe you would like to find out more about how to get involved or more than any of that. As a believer, if you live your life, which you should, which we all should as believers, if you live your life with a sense of mission, and that you understand your greatest ministry is not when you volunteer, when you're on the nursery schedule or when you're ushering or greeting or whatever. But your greatest ministry is, is you living your life every day wherever you are. 
Your ministry never stops. Your mission never stops. It doesn't begin and end here. It, it is who you are in Christ. It's your life. It's your lifestyle. And so I wanted to take time at the beginning of this year for all of you to understand my heart and my vision and, and, and this, the heart and the vision of this congregation. Uh, and I think that's important. And we're going to talk about why it's important for us to come together on Sunday mornings and, and worship corporately. But, but let's just begin here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is uh, the Great Commission. We're going to kind of be here a little bit later, but let's just read it together. Starting in verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's our mission. That's our mission. Go. He says go. He says to make. He says to teach. He says to baptize. Now he, he's given us our mission. Acts 1 8 is another scripture. Let's turn over there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is just getting ready to ascend to heaven, and he has commissioned his disciples. And he says, But before you do anything, go to Jerusalem and wait. For the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit, which Jesus taught in depth about in John 14, 15, and 16. In the Gospel of John, that's recorded. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There we have a, a method. How are we going to take? What's this going to look like? This go, therefore, this mission. Well, he says, you're going to preach the gospel. You're going to be witnesses and very practical. Jesus isn't being real super spiritual here. He's just being real practical. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is your beginning point because this is where you are. And you go out from here and you preach the gospel till you, what? Get to the ends of the earth. Well, when do we stop? When he says so. When, when does he say so? He'll come and tell you when that time is, okay? Until he comes and tells you when that time is, you just keep going. You mean in a dream, in a vision? No, no. I mean, he'll really physically come and tell you to stop. So until he physically comes and tells you to stop, then you just keep going, all right? And, and how did they do this in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? And Acts 2.46 says this. So continuing daily. Oh, you mean they didn't just do it once a week for two hours on a Sunday morning? No. The continuing daily in their mission with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So we see right there in that verse, we have in the temple and from house to house. Do you know, it's interesting if you... If you read the history of the Jews and you realize that one of the most significant things that God did in their history when he sent them to Babylon, you realize it was in Babylon that the whole synagogue system kind of developed. And that wasn't by accident. What, what we have here that we call a church where we gather together, this is really modeled after the synagogue system of the Jews. 
You, you know, the temple was in Jerusalem. You had Jews living all over the world, so they couldn't go to Jerusalem every Sunday to be in the temple. So they had synagogues in their communities. Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth, the town he grew up in. Every town had a synagogue or more, depending on the population. And so God developed that system that we are really still participating in. We don't call this a synagogue. We call it a church. But the method was developed by God himself through the captivity of the Jews in Babylon. You think God understood what he was putting into place? Absolutely he did. Because when he sent the Jews captive to Babylon, he understood what his commission was going to be, ultimately to the ends of the earth. This is why we had a church begin in Jerusalem. Do you realize that? 2,000 years ago, there was one church in Jerusalem that began. There's still one church, but this one church now is represented and, and meets together constantly throughout the world all the time. See, we're just in the Sunday-only mode in, in America, but there are places on earth where they literally still meet daily, house to house. So we see this method here in the temple, in the synagogue, in the houses, in the marketplace. In other words, wherever they were, the church was meeting, formally or informally, because they had an understanding that the church wasn't a place they went. The church is who they are. Church isn't a place you go. Church is who you are. Church. Amen? Amen. There was a structure. Acts 2, 42. Let's look at that. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. There was teaching. There was fellowship. There was communion. There was prayer. There was a structure. There's this, this thing now, this movement that has kind of sprung up in the last decade or so called open church. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. An open church is basically where the believers just come together and then they just get in a house and then they just let the Spirit of God do what the Spirit of God's going to do. You know, now I'm not against that. I, I'm all for the Spirit of God doing what the Spirit of God's going to do. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say God never formulated a structure is that you're not reading your Bible. You're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. God developed all of that. We see the remnant of it. Now we can abuse it. We can misunderstand it. We can lose the true meaning of what the structure was designed for. And all of those things have happened. But we don't throw the structure out just because men have come to misunderstand what it's for. Amen? And so these elements, this is, th these are the, this is the structure of our faith. This is the, the elements that exist from the very beginning. It might change in what kind of music we sing or what kind of building we meet in or whether it's a house or it, it doesn't matter. But, but there's this basic structure of what God does, what we do as believers when we come together. I mean, we need to be taught this is one of the reasons we come together for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And how has God chosen to teach us? Well, his spirit 
is what ultimately teaches us, but we can also say that God has given teachers to the body, preachers to the body. For whatever reason, God has determined that men will preach the gospel. The gospel will be heard through the preaching of men. He could have ordained angels to do it. He could have ordained dogs or cats to do it. I mean, really, he could have. God, God could do that. I mean, he had a donkey speak to, to the prophet. But no, he's chosen men to preach the gospel. So, God's developed these things. So, that we need to have this foundational understanding. And we need to develop the things that we do and do the things that we do based on what has been and what is revealed in the Scripture. So when we talk about these things like philosophy of ministry and, and we get into some of the things that we're going to be talking about, you know, there's always this, this risk that there's a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation. But we can't let those things keep us from talking about these things uh, because then we would never say anything. We'd never teach anything. And so the reality that should motivate us above anything is a desire for truth. That truth would be imparted to the hearer, so that the truth could set men free. Amen? So there's this fine line between encouraging people in the truth, equipping them and helping them do what God has called them to do, to live out, to walk out this mission, and this whole thing of feeling guilty or feeling, well, the preacher's saying I'm not doing enough. And every time I go to church, I feel like they're just telling me I'm not doing enough. No, that's not it. That's not the attitude that we should have. This isn't about how much you're doing. It's not. This is about who you are, not what you're doing. What you do doesn't make you who you are. Who you are makes you do what you do, right? Remember? Remember the basic analogy that I always use. My dogs bark because they're dogs. That's why they bark, because they're dogs. They didn't become dogs because they started barking one day. They bark because they're dogs. This isn't about trying to get you to do something. This is about you understanding who you are. Amen? This isn't about trying to get you to Go to a certain place week in and week out. This is about understanding that you simply go there because that's who you are. Amen? And so we should never preach or teach with the purpose of making people feel guilty or condemned. We should preach and teach trusting the Holy Spirit to bring a conviction where conviction's needed and to bring a revelation of truth where there needs to be a revelation of truth. And that revelation of truth should affect change and transformation in our lives. Amen? I mean, we, we are all in need of change and transformation. None of us have arrived. None of us have come to a, an end of the knowledge of Christ. You know why that's true? Because there is no end to Christ. He's an infinite being. And there is no end to him. So we're never going to come to an end of the knowledge of him. Isn't that amazing? You'll never get bored. People, people I used to have youth in my youth group Pastor Jeff, are we just going to like float around on clouds? I mean, that just sounds, I had one, bless her heart, she, did, she came to me one day. She said, it just sounds so boring to me. I mean, how long can we just float around on clouds? You know, playing our harps or singing songs. Won't that get boring? Now, that was a, she had a legitimate, honest question. That was her concept of being in heaven one day. 
And, and I'm like, I'm with you, sister. That sounds like the most boring thing I can think of. You know, who in the heck wants to float around in a cloud for eternity playing a harp? I mean, how many songs can you sing before that just gets kind of boring, you know? <laughs> That's not what we're destined for. It's not. And so we need to get those silly notions. I don't know where we got those. You know, we either saw too much Renaissance art or I don't know what the deal was. You know, we've seen too many pictures of little cherubs with harps. You know, do you really think that's what angels look like? I mean, come on. Those are all the babies that died and they become angels with wings. Uh-uh. Come on, people. Let's let the Bible define these things. Those are vain imaginations. Come on. Man, heaven's not going to be boring. Our eternity with Christ is going to be anything but boring. It's not going to be. And so, we want to speak the truth. And we want to let God be God. And we want to let the Spirit of God be the Spirit of God. So, if we don't talk about these things, if we don't understand what our mission is, if we don't understand why we do what we do, then we got a problem. And it's important for us to understand it if we're going to be who the Scripture declares us to be. Amen? So let's talk about today the philosophy of ministry that Christ Fellowship Church embraces. Every church has a unique identity, a DNA, a DNA if you will, which is formed by the interaction of theology. Uh, see, we don't like that word either. But it's just a big word that means the study of God. I've had people tell me, well, listen, brother, I'm not into theology. What, what you don't like studying about God? See, no, we should grow in the knowledge of Christ, who God is, right? That's, that's what theology is about. It's about learning who God is. And if I learn who God is, the more I come to understand who God is, the more I come to understand who I am. Because I'm one with him, because I am bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, it helps me understand my identity in Christ. So, it's the interaction of theology, philosophy, and practice. It all starts with theology as a church's understanding of God and his scriptures. And this theology affects the philosophy of ministry, how we apply wisdom to the knowledge that we have. That's really what philosophy is about. Philosophy's gotten a bad rap because there's all kinds of wacky philosophy out there, right? But listen, we need to apply the knowledge of God that we have wisely. Amen? Amen. And this is what I'm talking about. How do we apply these things wisely so that it becomes how we live and how we operate as a church? Each church operates within this Philosophy and this theological understanding that it possesses. Finally, this philosophy founded upon the theological beliefs affects the practical outworking of a local body. This is what we're talking about today. The practical outworking of this body, what we believe. So let's go back to the Great Commission. Now, I broke it down here in your message guide. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Remember, our mission falls between that statement and the last statement Jesus makes there when he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he says, go, and he hasn't said stop yet, right? So he says, go. He says, make. Make disciples. He says, teaching them. He says, baptizing them. So go, make, baptize, teach. These are action words. This is what we are to do as a church. And our philosophy of ministry needs to reflect that reality because that's our mission. The mission of CFC and our philosophy of ministry must complement one another in the Great Commission. Amen? Amen? So let's talk about 
these philosophies. I, I shared some of this with you about a year or so ago, but I'm going to share it with you again because it's important for us to understand this. Attractional versus incarnational. This, this goes to the point of our mission where Jesus says, go, go therefore. So what does that mean? Draw the people through your doors, then keep them there. This philosophy of ministry is called attractional. So if we have a smoke machine, some people like that. Let's get a smoke machine because if we have fog, it's real cool. I actually had someone ask me one time, do you guys have a smoke machine at your church? I said, no, we don't have a smoke machine. And, and actually, they said, boy, I'm glad because I would not come to a church with a smoke machine. <laughs> they said, I went to a church with a smoke machine, and I'm like, why do they have a smoke machine on the stage? <laughs> is this a concert or is this worship? I'm just saying, we do things like that to try to be attractional. We're not called to be attractional. Take the gospel from within the walls of our building and affect the lives of those we come in contact with. Go to the people just as Jesus came to us. This philosophy of ministry is called incarnational. It's fine to attract people if, what we, if who we are and if the manifestation of Christ in us and the love, the very first thing that people always tell me when they come here is, I just felt love. I felt loved and accepted and, and, and it just felt so warm. It felt like home. Well, that's not because we picked this color chair or stained this concrete this color. It's because of you people who embrace people and reach out to people and they feel the love in this place because of the love of God in you. That's, if that attracts people, that's great, but don't let it just be in here. Take that with you wherever you go and reach people wherever you go. Jesus was less concerned with attracting people, but he did, think about this, he did go from heaven to earth in order to save men. I always tell people this, every other religion on earth is waiting for man to reach God, save Christianity, Jesus came. God came to us because he knew he, we could not reach him. And so, don't let this be the only time that we affect people with the reality and the truth of the gospel. Take that love and become Christ to the world around you. That is incarnational versus attractional philosophy. The next is this, width versus depth. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples. Many churches cite numeric growth as their driving evidence of success. Achievement being determined by the wide number of people hearing the message. We must understand that a primary purpose of the local church is to make disciples. If our message has wide appeal but no deep or lasting impact, if we only get people to attend but never make disciples, we have not succeeded regardless of how many people we get to come through our doors. Amen? Amen. This is why I talk to you people the way I talk to you, you people. <laughs> Ross Perot got in a whole lot of trouble for saying that little phrase right there. But I talk to you the way I talk to you. 
And I teach you and I preach to you the way I do because it's important that you understand things that are true. I want to appeal to you. I want to attract as many people as possible, but not at the expense of you hearing a message that will, that will cause you to have a foundation of lasting faith. Amen? If we only say the things that are popular and never true, then we may never know the difference, right? So it's very important. Jesus chose depth over width. His goal was to make disciples. It's interesting, if you read the New Testament very closely, and I'm not saying that this is the model we should follow. This isn't about finding a model and following it. But here's the reality. In Jesus' short ministry on this earth, in his three and a half years of ministry on the face of this earth, he had a ministry of diminishing return. In other words, he started out with a bang, and it seems he went out with a whimper. It's terms of the way natural man would look at it. To the point that the leaders of his day stood at the foot of his cross and chastised him. You saved others, can't you save yourself? If you're the king, why don't you come off that cross and take your kingdom? Because they didn't have ears to hear. Kathy talked about this today in Bible study. There's a way we're to hear. We can hear with just natural ears or we can hear with the ears of faith. We can see with our natural eyes, looking at it naturally, Jesus hanging on that cross. It didn't look like much victory there. To the point that those disciples ran and hid for their lives, literally. They saw no victory in the cross. At that point in time, because they only saw with their natural eyes. And they only heard with their natural ears. But praise God. God sent his spirit and he opened their ears and he opened their eyes. And they came to understand something beyond what they could see or hear naturally. Church, this is where we've got to come to. We've got to see and hear beyond what we can perceive naturally. And, and we are called to make disciples. That means that we've got to embrace depth over width. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't appeal to as many people as we can, but never, never, never at the expense of them becoming disciples. I mean, depending on how you look at it, Jesus had 12 apostles. He had 12 people that, were, that became his apostles. He actually had more than that that traveled around with him. Let's just say that we know for sure there were at least 120 hardcore disciples of Jesus. They were in the upper room on the, the, the day of Pentecost. But there, it's, it's also fair to say that there were 12 that were with him all the time. And out of that 12, there were three that, that he had a relationship with that he didn't have with the other nine. That doesn't mean he didn't love the nine less. It doesn't mean he loved the nine less or anything. But, but I'm saying we're talking about depth here. And our goal as a church is to make disciples. Amen? So, well, how deep should I go, Pastor? You go as deep as you can go and as you want to go. Well, how, how, when do I stop? Again, 
you don't stop. You just keep going. Well, when do I know that I've come into the knowledge of Christ? Well, you know, know that you've come into it and you keep going into it and going and going and going. Amen? If you live to be 120 years old and you studied this Bible every day for 24 hours a day, you'd never plumb the depths of it. I can promise you that. Not if you really have ears to hear and eyes to, eyes to see. You won't. You won't. So don't worry, you're not going to run out, you're not going to hit bottom, okay? Just keep going. Width versus depth. As a church, we want to make disciples. And so what we do needs to be about that, even here on Sunday morning. We have precious little time together. And so the time that we spend together, Sunday morning is not appealing to the lost. Sunday morning is about equipping the saints. I want the lost to come. I want everyone to come. But our time here is about equipping the saints for the work of ministry. It's about a lot of things. We are not here on Sunday morning just to appeal to the world. Amen? We're never, we've never been called to appeal to the world. We're not trying to conform to the world. Listen, the world needs to conform to God. God, doesn't, isn't called, God is not going to conform to the world. The world is going to have to conform to God or they're going to be lost. Amen? All right, the next one is marketing versus mission. Marketing versus mission. Baptizing, teaching. This is, what, this is what our mission is, okay? The temptation today is to market our churches, to brand them so that they fit a certain niche. This is a common tactic used by marketers to attract consumers to a product. I was a marketing major at the University of Texas. And so marketing is big business, I promise you, the majority of you buy what you buy, go where you go, and do what you do because of marketing more than you realize. You, you, it's, marketing is so effective, you don't even realize you're being manipulated by it. And that's the most effective marketing is when you don't realize you're being manipulated by it. Listen, we're not called as a church to have a marketing plan. The problem with such strategies is that we make people consumers... Can I get an amen? amen? Instead of disciples. And the church a product instead of Christ's body. I hear it all the time. Well, I'm going to this church because they've got blah, blah, blah. That's like saying, well, I'm going to Walmart because they've got better meat. Well, I shop at H-E-B because they have better produce. That's not what the church is about. And we shouldn't live our life like that. I mean, God can move us here and there, but let's, let's be moved by God, not because of a marketing plan. Amen? Amen? The problem, again, we're not making consumers, we're making disciples. The church isn't a product, it's the body of Christ. The church was not given a marketing plan, but a mission. We are to win people with the gospel. Church, there is no other plan. The gospel is the plan it is the power of God to salvation. We have no other plan but the gospel to save men. Nothing else will save them but the gospel of Christ. There's not power in anything else. We might think there's power in our marketing because we've attracted a wide audience. But the reality is, have we made disciples? You don't make disciples through marketing. It is the gospel. That's the plan. That's the power of God. So whatever you win people with, that's what you're going to have to continue to keep them with. This is why we must be gospel-centered. We must win people with the gospel. 
if we build ministries around men and around marketing, when the men and the marketing change, guess what happens? The people become disillusioned. That's why it needs to be built around Christ. It needs to be gospel-centered. Because Christ is never going to pass away. His word's never going to pass away. And the gospel isn't either. The gospel never loses its power. Never, ever, ever. So we do this by having a missional perspective as we live a gospel-centered life. Here again, our lifestyle should be missional. We should live every day with a sense of mission. Not about what we're to do, more so about who we are. Amen? Our life and mission should effortlessly abide in one another. People ask me, well, well, what should I be doing? How hard should I work? And I always say, see that branch connected to that tree out there? You work as hard as that branch is working to stay connected to that tree. How hard is that branch working to stay connected to that tree? It's not. But yet the branch is working, isn't it? I mean, how did the fruit manifest on the end of the branch? There was a work that the branch did, right? But yet it was the life of the vine that did it. The branch isn't working real hard to hang on. The branch is just abiding. See, our mission shouldn't be something we're striving real hard to do. It should just be something we abide in as we abide in Christ. It should just, it should just be part of who we are. Just like it was with Christ. The mission of Jesus flowed out of his life. Jesus didn't wake up and say, Wow, gosh, I guess I better be on mission again today for the Father because he sure is dependent on me. No, he didn't do that. I mean, he just lived his life. It just, it just flowed out of him. It was who he, it's who he is. And this is part of being equipped and being discipled and growing up. Remember, we talked about this last week, growing up in all things. Well, how does it become effortless? You grow up. You grow up in that. And, and, and pretty soon you begin to, through the transformation that comes by the renewing of your mind, it just begins to click. It begins to click. The Spirit, this is what the Spirit of God is doing through our life and in our life. The next one is this entitlement versus sacrifice or service. Serve the mission. We're called to serve the mission. Now, let's be honest. God does not need us to serve him. If we're just really honest about it, he does not need us. God is not needy, okay? Remember, God didn't create us because he had an emotional need and he was lonely. No. Don't compare God to your humanity, okay? He is greater than that. But, we can say this too. God may not need us, but he has chosen to use us. Amen? Amen? For whatever reason, we might not understand it. God has chosen humanity to preach the gospel. To make the message known. And in that sense, we're serving the mission. A deep and pervasive sense of entitlement exists in much of the church today. Many assume that the church exists merely to meet their own felt needs. The church that caters to such an ideology is forced to create endless programs to meet those ever-changing desires. I get calls almost on a daily basis from people from all over the place who need help. And our number has gotten out there 
in the 211 system. And so, man, uh, they just call. Now, we help a lot of people, but we, we have this last year was our, was our most difficult year financially, I think, that we probably have ever had. And our ability to help has been greatly restricted because of uh, the finances. I mean, it's, it's been very, very tight. We haven't said really hard anything about it. You know, I, I resist getting up here and making a plea and saying, now you guys, you know, I, you know, you shouldn't give because there's a, a need. You should give because that's part of your work. That's part of who you are. You shouldn't tithe because, oh, the church is having a hard time financially. I better start tithing. No, you should tithe whether, whether we're rolling in the dough or whether we're not. <laughs> that should have nothing to do with your giving. I, I understand we live in the real world and it does. And, and people respond based on things like that. But, but see, this is part of growing up in Christ. Those things should make no difference. Your tithing shouldn't be determined by how much money you make. A tithe is 10%. So 10% of, of a thousand is very different than 10% of a hundred, right? But the tithe is the tithe. And so I get people that call all the time. And my first question to them is always, do you have a church? 98% of the time, the answer is no. And, and honestly, and here's what I tell them. I say, you know what? Our finances as a church are so tight right now. We are committed first and foremost to help the people that are members of our congregation who are in need. I said, that's what the scripture demands. And the reason I'm asking you if you have a church, because you, if you have a church, you need to go to your church. Your church, and sometimes they say, well, I have a church, but my church won't help me. And then sometimes they get upset and they say, but, but you're the church. You're supposed to give me what I need. I hear that a lot. You're the church. You're supposed to give it to me. This is the, the attitude of entitlement that exists. But that's oftentimes outside the church. The world's looking at the church saying, you're supposed to give it to me because you're the church. This is why it's important, church, to operate biblically. I mean, if we're just going to be moved emotionally and say, well, oh, well, we're supposed to love people with the love of Jesus, so I should give them whatever they ask for. No. Where does the Bible say that? I mean, Jesus does say if they ask for your coat, you know, give them your shirt also. But he also says don't cast your pearls before swine. Paul says if you don't work, you don't eat. So we can't take one of those things out of context and apply it. We've got to take the whole counsel of God and look at the whole context of the Scripture and then use wisdom and apply these things wisely so that we're helping people more than we're enabling people. There's some people you flat out better not give them any money because they're not going to go buy food with it. They're going to go buy drugs with it. So don't give them but, but I'm supposed to. I've had people tell me, but, but aren't we supposed to? They asked me for it. I know they're going to go buy drugs with it, but, but they asked me. And no, you're not supposed to. I mean, if they were going to go buy strychnine and kill themselves, would you give them the money to go buy that? No, you wouldn't. That's kind of what we're doing, you know, a lot of these cases. So this sense of entitlement, we need to understand. We're not here. The church doesn't exist just to cater to people's needs. You, it, it, this isn't about that. 
Well, what's it about then? We spend too much time dealing with symptoms instead of the disease. The gospel goes to the root of the disease. What's the disease? It's sin. What's the answer? The gospel is the answer. Christ is the answer, right? The greatest need, felt or not, is for the gospel. That's the greatest need that exists. The Bible doesn't teach that the church exists to meet your needs. The church exists to meet the needs of others and ultimately to glorify God. Amen? So we need to recognize that people have legitimate needs and we're here to serve those, those needs or to serve the people with needs, but an attitude of entitlement and true service will always be at odds. So we don't come here to get what we want. We're really here for, for, for much different reasons. We'll talk about some of those in a little bit. This isn't about having my needs met when I come here. This is about the needs of others, but more importantly, it's about God being glorified. Amen? So we're saved by his grace, not because we're entitled. We're saved because Christ in his grace chose to save us. He didn't have to come from heaven, right? No, no one said Jesus has to come to earth to save us. He did that by his grace. He didn't come because he was forced to come. He came willingly. He didn't come because we were deserving of it. He came not because of that, but because he is graceful, because he is love. And he chose to save us. He chose to die for us. So we're called, we're called as the church to reflect Christ to the world. To be willing to sacrifice when necessary to serve always so that the love of Christ is made known. This is our greatest joy. Now here's where the misunderstanding, you know, we can get this attitude that, man, you know, do I always, you know, what, do I always have to give or, you know, what is, no. Sometimes we live with that. I mean, the other night, I, me and the kids were watching a movie together and the police called me six times in 30 minutes. Now I could kind of get an attitude, right? And say, oh my gosh. Call somebody else, but I didn't. I really, I didn't. I'm actually thankful that they call. Now, sometimes they call in the middle of the night, and I'm sleeping really good. I'm not real thankful. I'll just be honest with you, man. Phone rings at th when the phone rings at 3 o'clock in the morning, my first thought is the police department. Somebody needs shelter. Somebody needs something. You know, and I used to have to get up and get out of bed and go do something with them. And that was really hard. Now, you know, I've used a little bit more wisdom. You know, when I was in sales, the, the motto was, don't work harder, work smarter. Right? So what I do now is I've set this deal up where I don't get out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. I just make a phone call. And, and then, you know, the police will get them where they need to go or if they don't have a way to get there. But, but nonetheless, there's a legitimate need. The need somehow needs to be met. And it's not that we don't meet needs. It's not that. But when God uses us to meet those needs, when God uses us in that capacity, it shouldn't become something that's burdensome. We, our desire, our heart should be to find the joy in that. How can I find God's joy in the midst of having to maybe sacrifice or serve when it's not convenient for me? 
Church, this is where we need to come to, the place that we understand what God has made us a part of. Again, it's not about what we do, it's about who we are. And finding the joy in that. Finding His joy in that. Amen? And if you're not there, don't beat yourself up. Say, I'm not there. Don't, tell, don't give them my number. I don't want them calling me. Well, that's fine. And, and it doesn't mean that you, they have to or you, you're called to that. Maybe you're not. But you will be called to something. You're going to call to serve somebody, to sacrifice something for someone, sometime, someplace, whether it's a family member, uh, a, a co-worker, something. You're going to be called on. And, and you're going to have to make a choice to sacrifice your convenience or something to serve this person in love, and you can do it with a bad attitude, or you can do it with joy. And my prayer for myself personally is, God, help me come to a place where I can do those things with joy, not with a bad attitude. Not doing them just because I'm a pastor in town and to look bad if I don't do it. See, we got to get way beyond that. we got to find the joy, the joy of doing these things, of doing whatever it is God has called us to do, whatever his will might be for the moment or over the course of our lifetime. Amen? Sacrifice or service do not wear a label. Neither is based on a title or a ministry. They are the joyful lifestyle of those who daily follow Christ. As a congregation, I want us to embrace these things as our joyful lifestyle because this is who we are. Christ endured the suffering and the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Can we do the same? The writer says, you have not yet resisted unto bloodshed. I haven't haven't sweated blood yet. I have not resisted to bloodshed yet. Can I do what God has put before me with joy? Yes, I can, with his help, by his grace. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our desire. It's his. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Integration versus segregation. This is about diversity in one body. We don't feel we must gear a ministry toward a particular demographic to reach that group. We desire to reach particular demographics through integrated ministry. Now, that doesn't mean you, you, you won't have that. We have children's church every week, save the fifth Sunday of, of, of the year, in the years. There's five fifth Sundays. So four or five times a year, we're going to not have children's church and have all the kids in here. But all the rest of the time, you know, 47 weeks out of the year, we have children's church in segregated ministry. But, but we also have a time where everybody's in here together, singing the same songs, taking the same communion, so that little or big, our children can look around and see the diversity of the body of Christ worshiping together. So that they understand that this is not just about if I'm a kid, I am in this church. If I'm a teenager, I'm in this church. If I'm, you know, over 60 years old, I'm in this church. And then everybody else is just kind of thrown in the... No, we're one body. We're one church. So why integration instead of segregation? And this is, this is a reality. For decades now, we've segregated ministry. And we realized a number of years ago that, 
We're looking at this current generation, and we're saying 95% of this current generation have rejected Christianity, the Christianity of their parents, with only about 4% committed to faith in Christ. That means of this generation, only 4% will carry on in the faith of their parents when they leave their home, when they move out. That's assuming that the parents they're living with are going to make them go to church. Parents, I've had parents ask me, should I make my kids go to church? Yes and no. (laughs) I hope your children don't come just because you make them come. I hope you instill in them the value and the privilege it is to come. We used to tell our kids when they'd say, do we have to go to church? We'd say, no, you don't have to go. You get to go. It's not what we have to do. It's what we get to do. It's our privilege to go. I mean, there is a command in the scripture to train up our children in the way that they should go. But in that training up, it's to reach a point where you're not having to have training wheels on them any longer. They'll learn how to ride the bike by themselves. But there's something that's happening in our culture today that is seeing 95% of kids growing up in the faith leaving the faith when they become adults. And what's interesting is, of this 4% that remain committed to faith in Christ, continuing in that faith after they leave their parents' home, the common factor among them was intergenerational relationships. In other words, they grew up living out their faith, learning in the faith, participating in that faith with people of other generations, not just their own. I've said this before. There are kids now growing up in churches who will never see big church until they're 18 years old and they can't return to youth group anymore because you've graduated and you can't come to youth now. You've got to go to big church. Well, let's just assume that kid grew up from the time he was an infant in church. And for 18 years, he's never gone to big church. And now all of a sudden we're telling him, now you've got to go to big church. And they're 18 and they're on their own. What do you think they're going to do? Well, statistically, 95% of them don't go to big church. They abandon the church. We got a problem. Church, we have a problem. And who's going to fix it? Listen, we have a responsibility to look at these things, to look at these issues with both eyes open and say, okay, if what we're doing is not working, then let's not keep what we're doing. Keep on doing what we're doing. That's called what? Insanity, right? Let's not be insane. Let's be fools for Christ, but let's not be insane, okay? So there's a time and a place for segregated ministry, such as children's church, age-specific Bible studies, or gender-specific Bible studies. They're, they're not saying that there's never a time and a place for that. There is. But we need to make, we must make the effort to give our children and all of us, listen to me, a well-rounded and broad-based faith experience. We learn through diversity of age, style, interest, and interaction. So that's why we believe intergeneration Integration is a vital philosophy. It works with intergeneration too. That's why we believe integration is a vital philosophy of ministry to build strong and lasting faith. We believe integration fosters unity and family. Amen? We have to keep all of these things in balance. We can't get off on one side or the other and get out of whack. But we need to look at everything in its proper context. And we need, we need to begin to, to discern and use wisdom when we see the fruit of what we've been doing is not working. 
If we're only living life based on snapshots, we've got a problem. See, this is the problem. People come to church and they hear snippets. They hear sound bites and they judge everything based on a sound bite. I understand why we do that because the culture we live in, that's what we've been conditioned to hear are sound bites. You, you, you really need to think about this. This is reality. We have been conditioned to live life in soundbite segments. God did not give us soundbites. He gave us his scripture. This is the whole counsel of God in our life, in our lifestyle, in our theology, in our philosophy of ministry has got to be based on the whole counsel of scripture. And you're not going to get the whole counsel of scripture by hearing a soundbite or experiencing a soundbite. Which leads me to why we come together. And then I'm closing with this. There are many members in one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 20. So when we come together, we are many members, but we're one body. Your age doesn't determine whether you're part of the body or not, right? I mean, it's not just over 18 and then you can join the body. Uh Uh-uh. If you're a certain height, you're in. No. If your favorite color is green, which happens to be my favorite color, then you can join the club. Uh Uh-uh. They have anything to do with that. Some people like green. Some people like yellow. Some people like red, blue, orange, purple. Diversity. It's good. We come together. Why? First and foremost, to worship God as the body of Christ. We come to worship him. We come together to worship him corporately. It's a picture of unity. Our coming together, assembling together, is a declaration of this unity and the the reality that we are the body. We come to be equipped for the work of ministry. We're not here because we're entitled to something. We're here because God wants to equip us. And he's chosen the preaching of his word and the teaching of his word to equip us. So we're here to be equipped for the work of ministry, to be taught. We're here so that we can grow up in all things into him. Remember, go therefore, make disciples, teaching them Growing up in all things into him is about discipleship. One of the reasons you're here, being here corporately worshiping together. Coming to understand the whole counsel of God is part of your discipleship. It's what we're called to. It's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to do. It's who we're called to make disciples. Not find them, but make them. See, this is what marketing does. Marketing says, how can we go find some disciples and get them to come to our church? No, what Jesus said is go out into the world and make some disciples and then they will become the church. Amen. We really have to get this right. It's important for us. We come together to consider one another. Hebrews 10. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but before that it says, let us consider one another. We come together selflessly. Selflessness is what this promotes. Selflessness, not selfishness. 
selflessness. Considering one another. We come together to provoke one another to love and good works. That's why we should not forsake assembling. We're here to provoke one another to love and to good works. This is the service I'm talking about. We do one another a service when we come together. And it should be our joy to serve one another in love, the scripture says. We come together to provide a testimony to the world. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. When we, the church, come together, we provide a testimony to the world. We're telling the world something. When we divide, we're telling the world something. Everybody looks at the Muslims and says, man, those people pray five times a day. They get their carpets out and pray five times a day. Man, man, they're committed. Man, they're, what are they saying about the church? (laughs) You don't want to know. (laughs) How do we counter that? We become the witness God has called us to be. We come together considering one another to provoke one another into love and good works Giving a testimony to the world. They are Christians. We know they are Christians by their love. Amen? It's our witness. It's our witness. Oh, there's lots of other things I could say, but I ended it with this because this is what it all comes down to. To glorify God in all things. I'm going to tell you right now, everything you are and everything you do, everything in this created order, is to his glory. Everything, whether you understand it or not, the good, the bad, the ugly, it is all to his glory. And we are here ultimately for his glory. And that's not two hours on a Sunday. I'm talking about your lifestyle. Your life is to bring glory to the king. Amen? Amen. We are the church, and we are to glorify our God and our Father in heaven. And we don't just do that because of words we say and songs we sing. We do that through our very life. Worship's not what we do, it's who we are. Church is not where we go, it's who we are. Christ is not just a person up in heaven. You are his body in this earth. Make him known, church. Make him known in every way, in every shape, in every form. Make him known. These philosophies take this message guide home. Look at these things. Understand why we believe what we believe. That It's important not just that I believe this. It's important for you to believe this. To understand this is who we are. This is how we're going to affect our community. Remember I said, this is our Jerusalem. This is our Jerusalem. Let's not worry about the ends of the earth until we have done what we're to do in Jerusalem. And I'm going to tell you, there's still a lot of work to be done in Jerusalem. Amen? And I'm not just talking about the streets either. That's the least of our problem. Let's all stand. Y'all didn't think I could do it, did you? I know some of you are saying, yeah, but you still have to pray. That's true. I do. 
God is so good. Amen. Lord Jesus, please, Father, I ask you this morning to take us beyond mission statements and philosophies of ministry. Lord, give us, give us a heart, God, to receive what you are declaring to us. Not in a sermon, not in a message guide, but in your word. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Enlighten the eyes of our understanding, God, to come to know who we are. Lord, we live our life so often based on what we think we're to do. Lord, you've called us to live based on who we are. Based on who you are. This is so much more than what we are to do to have a list of things to do, God. It is understanding. It is comprehending who you have made us in Christ. And that our life... Our life, Father, would reflect that because you are, you are, Lord Jesus, our life. You're our glory. You're everything to us, Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us this sense of purpose and understanding that we are the church. That this isn't a once a week or a twice a week or a volunteer for this or volunteer for that. Lord, those things are great and good and we desire all that, Lord. But it's so much more than that. Father, help us to see this is our life. You're our life. And everywhere we go, we communicate you. We manifest you or not. We witness in one way or another. Lord, I don't say that to condemn anyone, but I say that to challenge us. That we would not live ignorant or with misconceptions, but God, we would begin to ponder these things and meditate on these things and allow the Spirit of God in us to begin to reveal to us your heart, that your heart would be our heart, that your will, as you prayed, Lord Jesus, that your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. We thank you, Father. We give you glory and honor. As the church this morning called Christ Fellowship, this congregation. We give you glory. We give you honor. Are you ready, church? And all God's people said, amen. 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 Hallelujah. God bless you. Have a great day. If you're here and you want prayer. Oh, yeah, Franny. Franny. Oh, I want to do that, too. I want to, not only, we want to announce, Franny's going to have a dinner next, uh, next Sunday to help her earn money for her school. She's getting ready to go back. And I want to pray over you, Franny. Can we do that? She just had her wisdom teeth out. And uh, she's a little puffy. Come on, Franny. Let's pray over you. And uh, just pray that you'll heal speedily, painlessly. Can I firmly lay hands on you? No, I won't. I'm just teasing you. Father, we thank you for Frances, Lord. She is such a blessing, Lord, to us personally and to the body of Christ. Lord, I, th- I just thank you for her excitement, her exuberance everywhere she goes, God. She just uh, takes excitement with her and laughter. Such a gift, Lord. We bless her today. We pray for healing, Father God. Heal this mouth and cause this pain and swelling to go down for her to heal speedily, Lord. 
In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Lord, we just guard against infection and dry socket, anything like that. We just pray, Father, before she knows that those wounds will be healed up and she'll be back to normal. Father, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Praise God. And for Spencer also, Spencer had his taken out Monday. But he has done really, really good. So we just... Ooh, Marley's getting hers out on Wednesday. Let's say a prayer over Marley, okay? (laughs) It's wisdom tooth time. Father, we just thank you for Marley. We just thank you for, Lord, a quick and painless surgery and a quick recovery, Father. Just minimize any pain, swelling, and discomfort. And we just thank you for watching over and protecting her. Give her peace, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Anybody else getting their wisdom teeth out? It's, It's the season for wisdom teeth. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else want prayer for anything? Please.